All right, so whether it's on your app or in your lap, go ahead, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. So we are in week 10 of a series called City in a City. We're actually concluding the series today. And what we've done is we've gone verse by verse, line by line, through Peter's letter to scattered, suffering churches and Christians. They're all throughout the globe, and they're going through a fiery trial. And he writes to them, and what we have been doing is we've been seeing how the Bible is not just uh, timeless, it's also timely. And how the message that Peter wrote to these believers who were suffering back in the first century is just as relevant, just as significant to believers today in our context in the 21st century. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. If you've been with us, it's been a a journey of discipleship. We started talking about identity, how who we are is what's going to drive everything that we do. Uh, We talked about what it looks like to walk in holiness and, and to be set apart for God's purposes. We've talked about how we can grow up, how we can grow up spiritually, how we can grow up relationally. We've talked about what does it look like to have a healthy relationship with authority? How do we relate to authority? Uh, what, is, what is a model for marriage that we all want to mimic? Uh, what, what does it look like for us to steward our gifts? Uh, what, what does it look like for us to suffer? We've talked about suffering. We've talked about suffering. And we've talked about suffering. The more that I teach the Bible, the more that I read the Bible, the more that I realize that it is a book that says that God is bigger than your suffering and better than your sin. And that's what 1 Peter has has been all about. And you read 1 Peter, some people they'll say, why didn't it just end with chapter 4? And then they read chapter 5 and they're like, oh, this actually makes a whole lot of sense. We have something else that we need to talk about. And here it is. This is what we haven't talked about yet. It's been kind of implicit. Today it's going to be explicit. How to be a healthy church. Peter is thinking about passing on the faith. He's thinking about legacy. He's like, how does this move beyond the apostles who walked with Jesus? And how do we appoint leaders who are going to lead healthy churches into a preferred future? So 1 Peter chapter 5, we are going to be in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter today. And here's the the whole idea, the sermon in a sentence. If you take notes, I encourage you to write this down. This is where we're going. As citizens of the city of God, we are committed to being and becoming a healthy church. That's what we want to be about at Coastway Church. That's what we want to send out at Coastway Church, as healthy churches, a healthy church that plants healthy churches. And what I want to do is I want to show you three marks of a healthy church today. And we, we want to look in the mirror and we say, I want this to start with me individually. I want this to start with my family. I want this to be rooted in my convictions, but also I want this to, to, to be collective, a, a collective commitment that we make together. We are going to be and we are going to become a healthy church. So let's get started. Verse one, so I exhort, that's a fancy word for urge, the elders. Okay, so this is not merely a physical stage that Peter is talking about. It's like someone's older than me. They're my elders. No, the term elder that Peter is using right here is referring to pastors, the most influential and accountable office of leadership in the church. So there's three words in the New Testament that are interchangeably used to refer to a pastor. We're going to see all three today, and one of those is elder. And so uh, he exhorts the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, 
as well as a partaker. So what is a pastor? A pastor is a partaker in the gospel. A pastor is someone, an elder is someone who deeply and personally knows the gospel. God at work in the life of the leader, in the life of the pastor, and it is the truest treasure. It, it is the heart pursuit of the pastor. And a partaker is someone who knows it, that is about this. And we are partakers, which is in the glory. Okay, you hear the word glory and you're like, what does that even mean? The glory of God is actually, it's, it's beautiful, but it's, it's simple. The glory of God is God's goodness and his greatness gone public for all to see. What is a disciple about? Taking God's goodness, taking his greatness public to as many people in as many places as possible. And that's what this is about right here. In the glory that is going to be revealed. Verse 2, the shepherd... So this is the verb form of the word pastor. What does a pastor do? A pastor shepherds. And who do we shepherd? We shepherd the flock. Notice how it says flock singular, not flocks, plural. And so this is really important in our online age and stage of our cultural moment. It can be easy for there to be pastoral envy, for there to be this uh, sense of discontentment, the grass is greener, uh, I, want, I want to pastor another group of people. Uh, it would be so much better this way or that way. But what Peter is saying is, hey, you're to live, you're to lead among a group of people who know you, who you know, who you love, they love you, of God that is among you. So notice that word among you. The most faithful thing that you could be doing right now with your life is being faithful with what God's put in front of you. So what has God put in front of you? And are you being faithful with it? So the context right here is for a pastor to be faithful with the flock that is among them. But what is, it, what is the flock that's among you? Uh, you know, is it your, your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your, your stress, your, your education? What is it that God has put in front of you? And what does he want to deposit in you as you are faithful with what's in front of you? And so elders are to be exercising, and here's the third word that we see, oversight, overseer. So we have elder, shepherd, overseer, interchangeable terms used for the same office of leadership, a pastor, who does this not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the call. That's the commitment of, of the spiritual leader, of the pastors, to say, hey, listen, I, I've, I've done a lot of this. I'm still doing this. It can be done. Why don't you walk with me as we move into the future and do it together? Why don't, why don't we go into obedience together? That's what it means to, to be a pastor. And this is to the flock. So number one, the first mark of a healthy church that I want to show to you is this. A healthy church is led by healthy leaders. And now that, that, that may sound obvious, but you're like, why, why all the talk about leadership? Because everything rises and falls on leadership. If the team is not winning, what happens? We need a new coach. If the country is crumbling, what, what do people say? 
It's not we need new citizens, it's we need a new president. Or if the school is underperforming, we, we need a new principal, or we need new teachers, we need better leadership. If a business is, is plummeting, what do we say? We say we need a new CEO, we, we need a new leader. And so guess what the Bible is constantly talking about? Leadership. And truth be told, if there is any organization on the earth that is worthy of good, godly, gifted leadership, it is the church of Jesus Christ. We have the greatest message that Jesus Christ died for sinners to touch and to transform every part of our lives. What could be better? We have the greatest mission. Make disciples. Move the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here's what the Bible is. And that's why I love, I love the Bible, because it's an honest book. The Bible is honest because it actually describes countless instances of hurtful leadership. You see it time and time again. Hurtful, harmful leadership that these are sins to avoid, these are examples to avoid. The Bible's honest. But the Bible only prescribes healthy leadership. And that's what Peter is doing right here. He's saying, those who lead you, those who feed you, those who know you, those who protect you are to be healthy leaders. And so what I want to do is I want to interact with a few questions because I think that when you start hearing these terms, elder, leadership, you know, church leadership, you start asking some questions. And so I want to kind of anticipate a few of these questions. One of them is, what is an elder? I know we've briefly touched on this, but let's go into a little bit more detail. What is an elder? And simply put, if you're taking notes, you can just put down, an elder is a pastor to a local church. If you really want to get some nuance to it, there's going to be a little bit more of a definition on the screen that builds this out, but it is a pastor to a local church, a spiritually mature male whose calling, character, and competence to shepherd God's people are validated through rigorous testing, examination, and affirmation. Any takers? This is like this is why James in James three one he says not many of you should re- uh, aspire to be pastors. Not many of you should seek to be teachers because you know you're going to be held to a higher standard. You're going to be held uh, uh, with higher accountability. And so, what does an elder do? If that's what uh, who an elder is, then what does an elder do? An elder does four things. An elder, first of all, leads the way. Uh, there's only two ways that you can lead, by the way: vision and example. So the vision, this is what an elder does. An elder sees more than others and sees before others and says, hey, this is where we're going. This is what God has said. This is what a preferred future would look like. That's vision. Let's define reality. This is where we are. This is where God's taking us. This is how we get there. That's vision. We need vision. You need a vision for your marriage. You need a vision for your education. You need a vision for your relationships. Elders must have a vision for the church that is from God and for the people. But it's not just vision, it's example. If that's where we're going, the example says, I'll go first. I will lead the way. I will stand in front. That's what it, that's what it means to be a leader. To be, is, is to say, hey, here's the vision, here's where we're going, and I'm willing to get out there and take some shots and make some sacrifices so that more people can go to the greener pastures of God's plan. 
So that's leadership. Next, it is uh, feeding. Okay, so here's, here's what I want you to know. I'm a Bible guy. I love the Bible. I love to read the Bible. I love to pray the Bible. I love to study the Bible. I love just the way it feels in my, in my hands. I love to mark it up. I love to meditate on it. I love to memorize it. And I want you to feel the same way. I want you to feel about this book that's from God about Jesus and for us. I want you to feel more emotionally attached to this than that Netflix series that you're watching. I want you to feel more attached to this than that delicious meal that you are consuming. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, I work hard, we work hard to make sure that you are spiritually fed when you come to Coastway Church. You're not going to get some little sugar pill. You're not going to get some little soundbite sermonette. No, we're going to feed you. Because we, we know you've got a week ahead of you. <laughs> you've got a week. There's going to be fears. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be anxieties. You're going to need resource and reason from God's Word. And so the, the number one job of an elder is to make sure that the sheep are fed, that they are in a pasture where they can graze and be nourished. And so at Coastway Church, we take this very, very seriously. The next thing that uh, an elder does is know the flock, one by one, knowing the sheep. And so how do we do this at Coastway? Uh, there's three primary ways that we seek as elders, John and myself, to know the flock. Uh, uh, number one is through what we call commissioning conversations. So basically, commissioning means committed. You show up as curious, you go to the weekender, we talked about that, you move into like, I'm connected, I'm meaningfully connected. And then we, at, at that point, if you say, hey, I think we're good for each other, I think I want to join this family, I think I want to be on mission with Coastway, then we sit down with you because we want to hear your story, because we want to know you, but, but, but because we want to make sure that we're moving in the same direction. And so before anyone could be commissioned with Coastway, there's going to be uh, 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 just a heart-to-heart -heart with the elders, and we want to make sure that we have a shared heart. Another way that we do this is by praying for you. Uh, I, I try to have something intelligent to pray, something informed by need, nuance, situation, to pray for every commissioned member every single month. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm going around and I'm asking, hey, how can I pray for you? Uh, what, what is going on? John's going around. He's asking, what, hey, how could, I, how could I pray for you. And whether you realize it or not, you are on our hearts and on our minds every single week by name and by need. And so when we see you, it's like, hey, how's that thing going <laughs> that, that, that you shared? Uh, another way, and this is really the primary vehicle of care for our church, is community groups. You see the Olsons, they multiply a community group. They're leading a community group. Uh, Victoria and I, we get to be in their community group. They're incredible community group leaders. But here's what happens is Community groups are the primary vehicle of care within Coastway Church. And so someone gets sick, someone's celebrating, someone gets engaged, someone's having a baby, life is happening, they're going to be the front lines of care. This, ha this in no way, shape, or form means that John and I and future elders are not going to be uh, intimately uh, concerned with, with your health and your flourishing, but the reason that community group leaders are in place is because uh, we're not Pastor Superman, <laughs> No one man can do all things. 
You know, we don't fly around with capes on. Jesus is the only one wearing a cape, and we're trying to be wedding coordinators who prepare the bride to meet him on that day. And it takes a lot of us. And so community groups, that's where, that's where care happens. That's how we know the flock. The other way is that the other thing that elders do is we protect. We protect. Pastors are protectors, not predators. And you go to a church where the pastor's a predator, you leave because a pastor is to be a protector. When things are anxious, when things are unclear, when danger is lurking, pastors are to be the front line of defense. That's what a shepherd does with his sheep, right? There's three types who will come into a church. They're sheep. Okay, you know, shepherds are sheep. Pastors are, are people. <laughs> and so uh, sheep, you know what, what happens? You know, sometimes we bite. You know, sometimes we get upset. Sometimes we get our feelings hurt. But for the most part, sheep want to be led. For the most part, sheep repent. For the most part, sheep forgive. For the most part, sheep value the gospel. But then there are goats. Goats are those who are in church but not in Christ. Very confused about repentance. Very confused about who's ultimately in charge and where is all of this heading. And so there's not a whole lot that shepherds can do for goats, maybe among us for a while, but usually something happens. You talk about the lordship of Jesus, putting him first in some area of your life, and it's just like, man, I'm out. But then there are wolves. And here's the thing about wolves. When wolves come in the church, they don't come up to you and go, boo, I'm a wolf. That's not how it works. No, the, the pastor protector, the pastor shepherd is always looking for wolves. And you see, a, a shepherd has two, basically two instruments to lead with. The staff, that's to lead the sheep, and the rod, and that's to pop the wolves on the head and say, get away from the flock. And so as, as pastors, this is why some people will say, oh, he's a nice guy. You know, oh, it's just so nice. Wouldn't he make a great elder? Probably not if he's passive and can't stand up to people and say no to predators because pastors are called to be protectors. This is what an elder does. Next, who should be an elder? Well, the qualifications of an elder are clear in a couple places. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. Titus 1, 5 through 9. And I'm not, we don't have time to go through every qualification and everything that's listed in there, but basically what you need to know is there are 23 descriptions, 23 qualifications to be an elder that are mentioned in just those two passages. Guess what? Only two have to do with competence. 21 have to do with character. Basically, the, the two is you got to lead your house well before you go out there and try to lead God's house well. So, so you, you know, you're, you're going to take care of your home before you take care of God's home. And the other is able to teach. Now, here's, this does not mean that you stand on the stage, you preach a sermon like this uh, from time to time. That's, it may mean that, but that's not what... Understand, Peter was talking about house churches, <laughs> He was addressing house churches. So basically, you need to be a great community group leader. You need to have the ability to communicate the gospel clearly and caringly in a group setting, you know, 15 to 20, 30 people. That's, that's what Peter was talking about right here. And so character is the foundation of the healthy elder. Here's what the New Testament prescribes and describes. The office of an elder as being filled by godly and gifted called and qualified men. This is going to be the most counterculture part of the sermon today, and it's this. God's design for pastoral leadership in the church 
should be limited to qualified men. Before you throw things, understand things. First of all, you've been conditioned. You've been conditioned by two great errors and one great lie. Let me, let's expose it, all right? Uh, Number one, the first great error is chauvinism. Chauvinism says men are better than women. Wrong. No. That's not the heart of God. That's not what God says. Then there's hard feminism. Hard feminism says that basically men are stupid, ignorant, and need the women to take charge and lead society. And essentially what's going on here is women are better than men. History is going to show you either. The Bible is going to show you neither. The Bible is going to prescribe. Not. It will describe. There's chauvin, It does describe some chauvinism. There's some moments that God couldn't bless because men weren't leading. But it never prescribes chauvinism. It never prescribes hard feminism. And so you've been conditioned by that. So when you hear this, you're already, you got these blinders on that God did not intend. So take those off for a moment. And here's the great lie. Uh, Distinction is discrimination. That's the lie that we're told and sold. And it is so believable. Here's what we believe and want you to know. First, we see and celebrate the indispensable contributions of women in the church, without whom the church of Jesus Christ would not be possible. Jesus had a mama. How about that? Her name was Mary. Imagine being Jesus' mama. Imagine playing that role in redemption. Jesus had godly, gracious, generous followers who were women who more times than not in the gospel were better examples than the boneheaded men. And it's like, hey, clue phone guys. It's like, I need you to lead. I need you to step up. I need, to, I need you to do something right here. But a second, here's what we see. We desire at Coastway Church to empower godly women to serve in every role that is open to non-ordained men. Now, let me be clear with what this means. So for example, this could be leading worship. This could be helping to facilitate someone that you, godly women, led to Jesus and baptizing them. Uh, This could be helping to facilitate communion. This could be helping to lead community groups. This could be witnessing, serving, giving, praying, loving, teaching in appropriate settings, disciple-making, and a whole lot more. Also, God's Word teaches and we affirm women are gifted in every way that men are. But here's the hook. Giftings are not the same thing as roles. And that's where the confusion comes in. That's where we think, oh, you're discriminating. No, 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 no. We we are drawing a distinction between gifting and roles. They are not the same thing. And so distinguishing is not discriminating. So think about it this way. Here's how we, I'll give you three short phrases to basically summarize this and give clarity. We believe in equal creation, shared mission, and role distinction. That is basically our philosophy on gender roles within the church. Equal creation, we were created equally uh, and w- fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. You know, we were, we were e- equally imputed the image of God to reflect His glory throughout creation. Additionally, shared mission. We are all called to cultivate uh, the, the raw materials of the earth for the purpose of stewardship. We are all called to go out and make disciples alongside one another and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Shared mission, role distinction. It's from the beginning and it's throughout the Bible. Now, men and women, we, we are more the same than different, 
We both are sinners. Uh, we, we both need to communicate. We both need nourishment. We both can, uh, you know, for the most part, reason together. Sometimes that can be a little difficult depending on your communication skills and just measure of humility. But we're, we are more the same than different, but we are different. Okay, there are God-given distinctions between men and women, and God has seen fit that there would be distinctions in offices of leadership within the church. And I'll give you an example of this. Elizabeth Elliot. So I don't know if you know who Elizabeth Elliot. She was the, the wife of the frontier missionary Jim Elliot, who led a missionary uh, basically encounter to uh, an unengaged, unreached people group in the Ecuadorian jungles. And he and several of his friends were actually speared to death as they were sharing the gospel among these natives. So Elliot, her husband Jim, lost his life on the mission field. And so Elizabeth, what she did is she went back, she shared the gospel with the same natives, the tribe comes to Christ, and you see this turn of redemption. But she goes on and she teaches at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and she's basically instructing, there's a group of men and women, students who are in her class, and she says, all right, men, let me talk to you for just a moment. I could teach the Bible better than all of you. I know the, better, the Bible better than all of you. But I also recognize that there's a difference between gifting and roles. And I honor that because that came from God, not me. A great resource that you could go to is called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by Kathy Keller, the wife of a pastor in New York. Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles would be a great way for you to go a little bit deeper into this and understand Coastway's philosophy on this. Those are questions, two observations. Healthy elders, what do we do? We lead together. Notice in verse 1 it says, so I exhort the elders among you. So the New Testament always refers to elders in the plural form. This is called shared leadership, and it's as old as God. What is the Trinity? God three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. It's three persons in one being collaborating and cooperating to bring renewal to the ends of the earth. The Father plans salvation. The Son purchases salvation. The Spirit powers salvation. And you see the dance, the cooperative dance of the Trinity. Three persons in one being, working together, shared leadership. So there's two extremes that we're trying to avoid at Coastway. Number one is the what we might call the sage on the stage approach, where this is just like, there's a man of God. He makes all the decisions. He has seven secretaries. You can't get to him. He's got an armor bearer for his Bible. Somebody mows his grass. And like, this happens. This actually happens. And it's like nothing gets done unless the, the man of God says that it needs to happen. And here's what you need to know. Uh, since a very early age and stage, John and I, we have led Coastway Church together. And why is it? It's because we believe in shared leadership. It's, it's because we believe that this is healthy. We believe it's healthy because it balances weaknesses. I love sermons. I love commentaries. I, I, I love thinking about, this is what we need to preach and this is where we need to go. John loves systems. John loves structure. We both love people. Sounds like a pretty good match, wouldn't you say? This is why the Bible describes and prescribes a plurality of leadership. It balances weaknesses. Additionally, it lightens workload. You do not want to have burnt out pastors. You do not want to have pastors who are doing everything for everyone at every point. <laughs> and so that's, that's what we try to avoid. Additionally, it heightens accountability. So decisions are not made in the echo chamber of one man. 
uh, and his wisdom or whatever. It's like there's decisions that are being made collectively. There's accountability. The next uh, state, or basically extreme that we're trying to avoid is everyone votes on everything. Uh, <laughs> basically, every little thing gets nitpicked from the congregation. I love you guys. That's scary. Um, there's a few votes in the Bible. Uh, one was when uh, basically they were deciding whether or not they were going to take the land that God had promised to give them. They didn't do it. Forty years in the wilderness. That vote didn't go well. Uh, there was another vote that happened, and it led to Jesus being crucified. Give us Barabbas. That didn't go well. Now, there are appropriate times in the, lot, the organization of a church when we do need to vote. Major decisions. The appointment of elders. Those are things when the whole congregation does need to come in. But whenever we're thinking about progress, there needs to be mobility with decision-making. Uh, so another healthy pattern we see from our sending churches while we're talking about elders is additional elders for every 50 to 100 commissioned members. And so what is this all about? Well, this actually shows up in Acts chapter 6. As the church grows, the needs grow, and as the needs grow, the structure must grow. So a growing church without a growing structure is a recipe for burnout and an unsustainable future. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be a part of that church. And so the day is coming quick when we will need to call up more godly, gifted, called, and qualified men to serve as shepherding elders. And by the way, these are not always paid positions. Sometimes they are, but not always. It's actually wise to have lay elders. And that's something that we have a vision for. And uh, additionally, right now, what we're seeing is that we want to start a process for this. Once our advisory council, these are a group of elders from our sending churches who basically help John and I think through wise decision-making. When, when we grow in size and they say it's wise, that's when we're going to start this process. Right now, it's manageable. There's about 65 of us, uh, almost 50 commission members, and you know, 15, 15 to 20 kids. Uh, there's going to be even more next week, by the way. We're growing. Amen. But it's, it's manageable at this point, but there is going to need to be more structure in place for us to move into the future that God has charted for us. When we grow to 100, we grow to 200, we grow to 300, we grow to 500. We believe that this is where God is leading our church. And so how do we minister to the entire church and the individual person? It's this, stronger structure, deeper discipleship, wider witness. That's the pattern that we see, and that's what we want to pursue. Next, healthy elders love being elders. Okay, so where, where do we see this? So take a look at verse 2. It's not under compulsion, but willingly. Nobody, nobody wants a willing victim as their pastor. It's like, well, nobody else would do it. I guess I'll lead you guys. No, no that's not what you want. So this is the temptation of what we might call pressure. You, you lead just because... Of, of pressure, and, and no one else will, will do it. Leadership should be driven by vision and relationships and informed by need. Vision and relationships. So 1 Timothy 3 says, if you desire this, if you aspire to be a, an overseer, if you aspire to be an elder, then you should pursue this. So if you're like, this, I am absolutely not interested in this, probably not what you need to be doing. Verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So basically, this is the temptation of prosperity. I, I, don't know, I don't know a single pastor who went into ministry for the money. I know some who have left because of the money. 
But basically it's saying, hey, don't be in this just for selfish gain, for prosperity, so that you could get ahead. As churches grow, sometimes this does happen. It's one of the sad realities of leadership is it becomes more like an, like an uh, uh, basically uh, a CEO than a pastor. And so while there is a business side that needs to happen, there's that shepherding side that just can't go away. And next, verse 3, not domineering but exemplary. So this is the temptation of power. You don't go into this for the power. And so the way that myself and, and John and any future elder would, would fight this is by acknowledging that every shepherd is a sheep. And this is one of the ways that we seek to remain humble. One president said, I remember what it was like to pump gas. And this was before, you know, the prices went up over the past couple of weeks. Like, this is a president trying to relate to the people. It's like, I remember what it was like to pump gas. And people are like, you remember? You're so far removed from the American experience, you can't even relate to us. He was trying to relate, and it's just like ended up isolating himself. Really, the point where a pastor gets corrupted by power is when he starts thinking he's in another category than the sheep. I'm in a community group. John leads one. It's always interesting. People are like, what did you think of Jeremy's sermon? And I'm over in the corner like, it's fun. We go home and we do the same things that you do. Guess what I'm doing this afternoon? I'm putting up a ceiling fan. Guess what it's almost time for me to go and do? Buy a lawnmower. One of our commission members, a great friend of mine, Travis Motzinger, he basically loaned his lawnmower to us because when we moved into our house, we needed to like mow our grass one time before it basically died. And so we're going to have to go and buy a lawnmower. You know, I try not to speed on International Drive. So far, so good. Uh, you know, we fight with our spouses. We forgive our spouses. We discipline our kids. We take our trash to the curb. Uh, we, we go to Lowe's uh, Home Improvement, and sometimes it goes well. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but what Peter's dealing with here is all about the motive of the elder. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, the chief shepherd, that's the senior pastor, that's Jesus Christ. Jesus came at first to save the sheep, but he will come at last to sentence the wolves. You will receive, when this happens, the unfading crown of glory. The ultimate motive of an elder is to be rewarded by God, not applauded by man. Too many pastors, too many pastors, and this is a unique temptation, are more about peacekeeping than peacemaking. Peacekeeping means let's not disrupt the peace. Let's not take a stand. Let's not tell anybody no. Let's, let's, let's not take risks. Welcome to Coastway Church. We do all three. <laughs> let's not do any of those things. Uh, peacekeeping is just don't disrupt the, the peace. But peacemaking means you have to enter into a war where there is not peace. And popularity is at risk. And so at Coastway, we want our main motivation to be our future reward. Jesus, he willingly came, he eagerly served, and he humbly died. He's the ultimate shepherd. He's the ultimate elder. He's the ultimate senior pastor. The next mark of a healthy church, here it is. A healthy church is held up by humility. I, I, want, you, I want you to see this in verses 5 and 6. Take a look with me. The first part of verse 5a, Likewise, you who are younger, that's physically or spiritually, be subject. So that word subject has been hijacked. What it means is to freely, to intellectually, and to joyfully follow. 
It's what we need. We've got to be under authority before we can be in authority. Be subject to the elders. Why does Peter mention younger disciples right here? I want to talk, if you're in your teens or 20s, this is especially for you, for you, not against you. Um, why does Peter do this? I'll tell you why he, do, he does it. Have you ever thought about how old the disciples were when Jesus called them? Some scholars say that they were in their early teens. Peter was probably the oldest. He might have crossed 20 at this time. That's why he's always talking first, because he was like the alpha male. And so Peter's looking back to that time when he was younger, and he had Jesus as his elder, and he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, saying just stupid, selfish, sinful things. And so he goes, I remember, I remember what that was like. I was so dumb. I was so ignorant. I didn't have enough education experience to really, to really even know what I was talking about. He's in his 50s, maybe 60s at this point. So he has been schooled by a lot of lessons in life. And what he's saying is, hey, when you're young, your passions and your pride can take you to a place that your integrity can't sustain you. This is why God gives us parents. This is why God gives us coaches. This is why God gives us teachers. This is why God gives pastors to his church, Jesus to his disciples. Uh, there is uh, an impulse when you're younger to be under, uh, or excuse me, to be in authority before being under authority. And basically, think about your life this way your teens and your 20s, it's about perseverance. Persevere in your education, per persevere at your first job, persevere as a new parent, persevere under even leadership that you would do some things differently, persevere and prepare. Persevere and prepare. That's what your teens and 20s are all about. What was Jesus doing when he was in his teens and 20s? He was persevering. But then your 30s, if you persevere well in your teens and 20s, you will have purpose in your 30s. When did Jesus start his public ministry? 30 years old. Coincidence? I don't, th I don't think that was a coincidence. Because it, it, he was accelerating into purpose. Uh, what are your 40s and 50s about? Production. You know your purpose. You know who you are. Now you're able to produce. What was Paul doing in his 40s? What was Peter doing in his 40s and 50s? They were producing. They were leading missionary journeys. What are your 60s and 70s about? Passing on worship, wealth, and wisdom. And so if you were just to say, I'm going to embrace my age and stage, that's what humility looks like. This is important because we are committed to engaging, establishing, and equipping young leaders with the gospel. That's what our residency is about. That's what Coastway College is all about. And what we believe is that so much of the good in our church is because of the 20-somethings who are doing this well. We, we are more because of you. We would be less without you. Don't miss what Peter is saying right here. It's not just, hey, get in line, soldier. It's that one of the greatest gifts that God gives physically or spiritually younger disciples are healthy and humble leaders who will lead, feed, know, and protect. Peter goes on in verse 5b, clothe yourselves all of you with humility toward one another. So clothes is uh, an intentional analogy that Peter's using right here. Why? Because what's the first thing that you see on people? Well, I know bike week in Myrtle Beach is coming up, so you might need to close your eyes and pray, but typically the first thing that you see on people, hopefully, is clothes. And so what Peter is saying is humility ought to be the first thing that people see on the people of God. 
You, you look at a, a Christian and you see humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. A truly humble church is a truly healthy church. If humility is to know and embrace your God-given place, that's what it is. That's what humility is, is knowing and embracing your God-given place, then this is a call for us all, not just younger disciples. And underneath all this, there's, there's a believable lie. It's like, I think that my life should be better. Why is that? It's because we are cloaking our pride in what America calls self-esteem. It's, it's interesting, there was a study of international high schoolers where uh, Americans, we ranked low on science, math, and reading, but high on self-esteem. I can't read, I can't write, I can't do math, I'm awesome. <laughs> That's, uh, here, here's the obstacle. We won't humble ourselves by ourselves. We won't do it. But to truly humble yourself, we need three things in our life as, and as a church. We need God's Spirit. God's Spirit to be our means. The, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit, it's like, what, what does He do really? Is he, he spotlights the life of Jesus. And He calls it to your heart and mind in moments when you're called to mimic Him and model Him. And so it would have been easy for Jesus to call down Michael and Gabriel and beat the devil with both hands when he was in the desert. But what did he do? He relied on the Holy Spirit. And then he used this next thing that the church has to have to be humble is God's Word. Okay, God's Word as our mirror. It's going to show me who I am. Okay, I've, I've rumbled with this for several years. I've just come to the recognition I'm never going to have cool hair. That's why I have a buzz cut now. I gave up. So basically what the Bible does is it shows you, hey, this is your place. This is who you are, and you just need to own it. It says this is your sin. You need to repent. It says this is your spouse. You need to serve and sacrifice. These are your children. You need to bring them up in the fear of uh, the Lord. And the last thing that we have to have is we've got to have God's people to minister. God's people who are going to say, hey, I'm going to be, I'm going to be tough on sin, but I'm going to be tender with the sinner. I'm going to be tough on sin, and I'm, I'm going to love you enough to not delight in what destroys. And I'm going to say, hey, listen, I, I love you too much to sit back and let you ruin your life. It's selfish. It's sinful. It's stupid. Don't do it. I would not love you if I sat back and just let you get leveled by this. But then it's also tender. It's like, I'm here for you. That's healthy. That's humble. More of that in your life. Number three, last one. A healthy church casts all her anxieties on the Lord. A healthy church casts all her anxieties on the Lord. So Peter is going to end his letter by telling suffering believers what to do about anxiety. So what is anxiety? Anxiety is meditating on the future without hope. Peace is meditating on Christ with hope. But anxiety is meditating. I think about the wrong things way too much, and it's our attempt to be God. Think about it. What's the middle letter of sin? It's I. What's the middle letter of pride? It's I. What's the middle letter of anxiety? It's, it's all about me. It's I want to know all. That's God. He's omniscient. I want to control all. That's God. 
He's omnipotent. I can't know all, I can't control all, so guess what? I'm anxious. And so we, we come standard with a laundry list of anxieties. And two of the biggest, there's a lot of different things that might make you anxious. It's dying slowly and or being publicly embarrassed. Two of our greatest anxieties is that that would happen. And here's the, the solution. It's clear, it's simple, but it's not easy. You've got to be intentional. Verse 7, casting, that means to throw all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. This is why the Bible is both timeless and timely. Because guess what we're still experiencing today, many, 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 many years later after this was written? Anxiety. NBC News released an article just this week that said 83% of Americans are anxious. But there was another study that showed that 91% of what we're anxious about never actually happens. And so Peter says the reason we're anxious is because we don't know God well enough. That's everything that Peter is, is saying in verses 6 and 7. In the past two verses, what does he do? He, because uh, the prescription for anxiety is a right view of God. Look at this. In the past two verses, Peter reminds us of these twin truths that we need to know about God before we will fully and finally give Him our anxiety. Okay, verse 7 is God cares for me. How do you know God cares for you? The cross. The cross. The cross is God caring for you. But then verse 6 says God is in control. His mighty hand. His mighty hand. How do you know God's in control? The resurrection, the resurrection. That's how we know that this does not end in death. Everything in my life, what the resurrection says, everything in your life is father filtered. I think about whenever uh, we took Eleanor, um, she was almost one, we took her to get her immunizations. And whenever we took her to get her immunizations, it's a very scary thing as a parent because you're like, I know they're about to stick a needle in my child and it's going to hurt. It's not going to feel good. But as the parent, we knew we knew that it was going to actually lead to her good, but we knew that it was going to be painful in the moment. And it was because we cared that we permitted that pain to lead to a greater good. And it was because we had a le level of control over her life and what would or wouldn't happen that we allowed that to happen. And I think this is what God is doing. This life is immunization. It is God saying, I care about you. I'm in control. If you will trust me, it's going to turn out really well for you. Peter goes on, verse 8, be sober-minded. Okay, so anxiety prevents you from thinking clearly. It's not driving while drunk. It's living basically impaired. You can't think clearly. Be watchful. Anxiety prevents you from seeing clearly. And here's who you need to see. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, what happens when you hear a loud noise? You get anxious. Why does a lion roar? To make the prey anxious, to escalate anxiety. And so he's seeking someone to devour. Do you see the difference here? Lions eat sheep, but shepherds feed sheep. There's a, there's a big difference. Verse 9, resist him. So we run from sin, but we resist the devil. Joseph in Potiphar's house in the Old Testament, he ran from sin when he was being tempted. Jesus in the wilderness before the devil, he quoted scripture and resisted him. There's a pattern. Firm in your faith, knowing, so this is being sober-minded, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood 
throughout the world. So when it comes to suffering, none of us are exceptional. It can be helpful to know, it can be sober-minded to know that others have suffered more than me and before me. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, you're like, how long is a little while? That's your entire life. It's our entire life. The God of all grace. Two things in life that you can expect. Suffering and grace. Suffering and grace. What is marriage? It's suffering and grace. What is parenting? It's suffering and grace. What is getting your education? It's suffering and grace. What is the Christian life? It is suffering and grace. This God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter moves us from worry to worship. He says, no one has humbled himself more than Jesus. No one has suffered more than Jesus. No, no one has served more than Jesus. He died a death under wrath on a cross. And guess what he did? He experienced, he, he pressed into our two greatest anxieties, dying slowly and public embarrassment at the same time. But at the proper time, what happened from that? Jesus was exalted. And then we come to the final stanza of 1 Peter. It ends this way, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So you want the realities of 1 Peter to stick, you'll need biblical friends around you. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, which is this mysterious union between suffering and salvation. Stand firm in it. Verse 13. She who is at Babylon, that's a reference to Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So here's the deal. If Peter needed people, he's, he's mentioning relationships right here. He's thinking about relationships. If Peter needed people, you and I do too. Verse 14, last verse. Greet one another with the kiss of love. And if you are sitting beside your crush today, I'm sorry to break it to you. This does not mean what you probably think it does. It just basically means that there ought to be a show of visible physical affection among the gathered body of believers, a warmth, a sense of love and affection. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter ends with peace. How do we have peace? We ha Here's how we have peace. Peace is the result of a war already won. There's no peacetime without wartime. The, the, there is, there's no way for us to, to be at ease, for our anxieties to subside, for our faith to rise up until we realize that the greatest war that will ever be faced has already been won by Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the chief shepherd. We have peace. Why? Because he's the chief shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We have peace. Why? Because he's the lion who became a lamb and laid it down for us all. We have peace. Why? Because we have a suffering servant who died a horrible death so that his church could be healthy and his church could be humble. We have peace. Why? Because we have a God who is better than our sin and bigger than our suffering. And that's what First Peter is all about. 